0: You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, O'Reilly's Mary Tressler chats with designer, creative coder, and artist Scott Murray about coding and computation in design, his book, Interactive Data Visualization for the Web, and his new book coming out soon, Creative Coding and Data Visualization with P5JS. Enjoy the episode. Hello, today I'm here with Scott Murray. Scott is a designer, author, and teacher. Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, of course. So I'd love for you to um, start off by telling us a little bit about how
1: you found your way into the field of design. Sure. Well, I guess like a lot of people, uh, more and more common these days, I sort of started out as a self-taught web designer. At the time, browsers were not so interesting. So this was, uh, I guess I started doing my first web pages in the late 90s. So it's like early, early web days, Netscape Navigator and Mosaic and stuff like that. Um And then sort of did that through school, after school, until about 2007. And this was before Chrome came out. And, you know, there was sort of this movement toward web standards. But the web was, you know, it was still super frustrating. And there was like a ton of... You know, I, I wanted to do really creative visual work, and instead I was spending a lot of time you know, debugging and checking for browser inconsistencies and stuff like that. So there are people who are really good at that stuff, and I just hated it. So <laughs> I, I went back to school. Uh, I got my MFA in Dynamic Media Design from the Dynamic Media Institute that's at MassArt in Boston. And it was at DMI that I was introduced to processing um, and the whole world of data visualization. And it was just awesome because at the time, I mean, browsers were getting better, but limited. And so there's this whole world of non-browser stuff that I got to do. It was really fun.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So your, your bio notes that you work with code, data, and computation. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that looks like.
1: Yeah, it's sort of abstract and weird in and interdisciplinary <laughs> way. Um, so I used to call myself a code artist, but uh, I've really struggled with a title, and I I think other people in my position feel similarly. Like so, those of us who are doing data visualization or generative art, creative, I know computationally based art or design work, um, I I was kind of uncomfortable with the word art. Like I like art, but I think um, you know I don't. Show work in galleries. I don't participate in kind of the traditional art economy, so maybe I'm maybe I'm not an artist, but more of a designer. As I get excited about design as a problem-solving process, I'm totally a process geeks. So we can talk about process. Um, <laughs> you know, get excited about design systems and consistency. So thinking about rules and um, values and data flowing through those rules and how they get expressed. And so I think for me, working with code and computation, it's a really kind of natural fit in terms of. Personality, because computation is itself an extremely consistent process, right? So when you're you're coding a project, instead of just, you know, it's it's not design in the sense that you're just drawing a single image and rendering that image, and hopefully that solves whatever problem you're trying to solve, it's that you're coming up with this whole system and you have to make that system explicit in code, and then the computer generates the image for you. So it's almost like you know, I think some of the best design work uh, pre-computation were extremely consistent systems that were solutions to you know solutions to complex problems. Mm-hmm. Um, like kind of common examples, like okay, the London Tube map or uh, wayfinding signage, um, for the New York City subway, or um, basically anything subway related is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I think you know if there's with computation, you let the computer actually come up with the image. You're just defining the system. Um, and then if there's a problem with the the process, like if there's a problem with the final output, it's probably a problem in your system as you've designed it. Like it's not a problem with the computer. It just means there's some scenario you didn't account for yet.
0: Mm, interesting. So you wrote Interactive Data Visualization for the Web, um, An Introduction to Designing with D3. Tell me a little bit about what prompted you to write the book and what the goals of the book are.
1: Sure. So, that book, let's see, this was in, starting back in 2000, I'm going to get the date wrong, 2011 or 2012 or something. I started hearing about this tool called D3. Um, just in case people haven't heard about it, it's a JavaScript library for doing data visualization on the web, and extremely powerful tool. It was brand new at the time. It was, it was very clear just kind of from the, the buzz in the community that this was going to be a really big deal, like capital. B, capital D. (laughs) Um, It was a really different way of thinking. It was a sort of a new kind of tool. It had a different uh, kind of conceptual model behind it. So it it was clear, like I wanted to learn it, but um, at the time I was doing freelance design work and it was hard to set aside the time to devote to learning it. So eventually I was able to get a client to sort of pay me to do something in D3. So at the time, you know, any kind of database type stuff on the web was still using Flash. and it was sort of a tough sell in the beginning to say, oh, we can do this with SVG and JavaScript and web standards and all that <laughs> good stuff. So now we don't even have to talk about that, which is great. But um, yeah, so I finally got a client who could pay me to basically spend my time banging my head against the wall trying to figure out this new tool because there weren't really there were maybe one or two tutorials for it online. It just wasn't super well documented because it was so early. Um, but anyway, as as I did that and was, you know, bandaging up my head, I would take notes on <laughs> any problems that came up. And so basically by the end of that project, I had a whole list of all the things that drove me crazy <laughs> trying to learn D3 and like I wasted tons of time on, but at least now I had this list and I sort of assumed that, you know, my my supposition was that anything that frustrated me would probably frustrate somebody else out there. So I started writing up these tutorials on my own website just to say, "Hey, here's how I think D3 works. Uh, this is the way that made sense to me. And, you know, hopefully this will spare you some headaches. Mm. Um, and those those really took off and started getting just a ton of traffic. And my wife actually suggested at one point, she's like, you know, you're getting, um, you know, thousands of visitors a day, like reading about this material, like there's demand for this. You should expand this and make it into like a proper book. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of what happened.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. So... Talk to me. I mean, you've been in the data visualization space for quite some time, but talk to me about why it's a great skill for designers to learn for those designers listening to this that are that haven't haven't yet learned it. What is um, what's so great about it?
1: Yeah, well, this is one of those questions that's great because it was so much harder to answer ten years ago, but now we're sort of you know we're we're swimming in infographics and like we have open government data, open data APIs, data, 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 everything. So it's just it's so much easier and so much more self-evident to you know explain why this is important. Um, obviously, you can't avoid data. It's kind of this critical part of the modern world, and the way I see it to stay relevant, designers. to keep engaging with the modern world you can't be stuck in the past and that means you have to engage with data and certainly visualization is a natural fit um, for designers because it's leveraging all the visual communication skills all the problem solving skills that we've already practiced it's just in a more specific domain so you know you might not be designing band posters you might still be designing posters or dashboards or charts or something but your source material are these rows and columns of values, instead of, you know, sort of unstructured text. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's just a more specific kind of design, it uses all the same skills, and then some.
0: Mm. Interesting. So, um, I totally agree with you on the, the, you know, the flood of data, you think about the growing need for visualization skills there alone, um, and just trying to understand and communicate vast amounts of data. Uh Um, so talk to me a little bit about, um, what you would recommend beyond obviously your book, what kinds of resources you would recommend to a designer who's new to visualization
1: wants to learn about it? Yeah, sure. Uh, So the other good news is we have tons and tons of books now. Um, (laughs) My book, Interactive Data Viz for the Web, is really specific to D3. Mm -hmm. So I just want to point out, like, that's that's a tool-focused book for learning a specific tool. It's really not about kind of the larger practice of visualization and, you know, when to choose, how to use, what type of chart, and what colors, and there's like a teeny bit of that sprinkled throughout. But um, I would really recommend that for anyone wanting to learn D three specifically. But somebody who's interested in visualization in general, um, there's tons of stuff out there just for inspiration, which is sometimes great, even if you 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 don't want to do data physics explicitly. But um, part of being a designer is you know being willing to spend tons of money on like really beautiful books, right? So um, there's like a couple. Uh, Toshin has a couple of giant books on um, there's information graphics from uh, edited by Sandra Rendgren. There's a she has a new one. I'm forgetting the title of. There's Gareth Cook has the best info best American Infographics series. Um, so there are more and more of these collections that are sort of I think good starting points just for inspiration. Um, some of the classic books there's Edward Tufte's books of course starting with the uh, Visual Display of Quantitative Graphics. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen Few's books like Show Me the Numbers. Those are, there's sort of some debate about this in the field about how relevant those are. And I mean, I think they're kind of getting back to first. So so for some background, I guess, I just assume everybody knows these names. Um, <laughs> those books are very much, they're coming from sort of a stats background. And so they're very much about precision and sort of integrating design principles with, um, you know, communicating data specifically. Mm-hmm. And I still think they're incredibly valuable, but um, they're sort of from this earlier phase in the field before we had mobile devices and interactive and all this stuff. So they're very much print focused. Um, some newer books, Alberto Cairo has the functional art and his brand new book, The Truthful Art, which just came out. Um, he's a journalist coming from a journalism background. I've co-taught a couple of courses with him. Hmm. Uh, he's fantastic. It's much more accessible, less dry than the others. Um, and then, there's tons of stuff. Uh, Stephanie Evergreen is a data viz designer consultant. She has two books out. Andy Kirk has a book out, but he has a new book coming out that I'm really excited about on data viz process. Hmm. Um, some of these books are more business focused. So I would say like Cole Nussbaum-er, um uh, Nussbaum Naflik, I think her last name is. <laughs> And Naomi Robbins, they both have some like great books that are more tailored to that specific audience, mm-hmm. like, a, like a business sort of audience. So I'm, you know, maybe somebody who's not a full-time designer, but I'm just working in my organization. I need to communicate my data better you know, what makes sense for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the, the real answer, I mean, we could go on for, for days <laughs> about lists of books, but the, the real answer is always, it depends um, You know, right. what books to recommend. And I know people hate that answer. Like when I work with students, I'm always like, it depends. And like you always say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it depends because data vis is such an interdisciplinary field. And one thing I love about it is everybody comes from a really different background. So, you know, they're they're only now starting to be academic programs in data visualization. Wow. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, historically, like everybody who's kind of practicing in the field now came from some other place. So they were either coming from design, data science, uh, statistics, architecture, computer science, um, cognitive science, so journalism. um, You know, like essentially everybody was sort of trained as something else and then found their way into this. Mm -hmm. And which I love, like doing data visit, like you get to meet so many interesting people and curious people, um, but it does make it hard. There's no kind of one size fits all solution when mm-hmm. people are trying to figure out how to get into it. So I usually point people to Alberto Cairo's website or Andy Kirk's websites. Uh, those are thefunctionalart.com and visualizingdata.com. And it's visualizing with an S, the British spelling.com. <laughs> uh, they both have like really extensive reading lists. And so I would recommend just kind of like letting your eyes glaze over those reading lists and see what (laughs) pops out, you know, because whatever makes sense to you as a starting point is probably going to be different than what made sense to me.
0: Right. Absolutely. Those are some great resources. Thank you. Um, I'd like to kind of flip the topic a bit and talk uh, Mm -hmm. about another topic near and dear to your heart, and that is coding. So you're teaching a class programming for designers um, here with O'Reilly and May. Can you talk a little bit about what that will look like?
1: Yeah, well, it'll be uh, really fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's a given.
1: <laughs> and then, yeah, that's a given. Uh, all courses are fun. Uh, no, this this course will be fun, and part of the reason why is I I love working with people who are new to code and sort of helping them catch the coding bug. Mm-hmm. And I like to point out, like I I differentiate between what I call coding or creative coding and programming. So. You know, this course, we're calling this programming for designers, but it is not going to be kind of a computer science-y approach to programming. This is going to be a creative coding approach to programming, which is to say the the philosophy I'm bringing to this is you figure out how to communicate to the computer to get it to do what you want. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that's pretty different from you figure out the most efficient way of solving a particular problem.
0: Mm
1: Um. So that, that's not something I do. That's something computer scientists and you know, proper developers do really well. Um, what I do is I'm trying to figure out how to get this thing working. And I'm gonna, the code is basically going to be written in a more human understandable way. And as long as the computer can understand it enough, <laughs> then, then that works for me. That's awesome. So um, what, what language are you using? So in this case, I mentioned processing earlier. We're going to use this new tool called P5 or P5.js. Mm-hmm. Um, P5 is, well, let me give a little context. So processing is this open source, free uh, programming language, programming tool. You can download it from processing.org. It's based on Java, which might not mean anything to you if you don't write any code. But it's been around for... T- 10, 12 years, it's been around for a while, um, really well established, um, pretty well known within the design community. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is it's this tool that has sort of designed and intended for beginners and intended for artists and designers. So a lot of the language that it uses um, is language designers are already familiar with. Like if you're trying to draw shape, you set the fill and you set the stroke and you set the stroke weight um, and you can have you know, red, green, blue values, hue, saturation, brightness values, you can have alpha transparency values. So it's kind of all language that you're already familiar with in terms of thinking of visual properties, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to some other programming languages not intended for designers where you can achieve the same effects, but it's it's really clunky and challenging. So processing has been around for a long time, but um, because it's based on Java, it... Used to work well on the web, and now it doesn't. Now that Java applets are sort of have been blocked by a lot of browsers. So, anyway, the short version of the story is: P5 is this fresh reimagining of Processing, sort of the philosophical approach of Processing, but based on JavaScript. So it's completely web-native. So everything that you learn in this course um, could stand on its own. So you can just use it, use P5 on its own, separate from the web, mm-hmm. or like anything that you learn will also be JavaScript. And everybody knows JavaScript is the language that runs in every web browser. So kind of everybody's trying to learn JavaScript. So for me, P5 is this amazing place to start because it's really friendly, really accessible as far as um, programming languages go. Um, and it's all really underneath, you know, for down the road when you start to care about stuff like this, it's all based on JavaScript. So everything that you learn here will be applicable and really useful down the line.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's interesting because we, um, we O'Reilly put out a, uh, uh, a salary report that included some information on tools and tasks and skills that designers have. And one of the things that we learned through that report was that designers who even code just a little bit earn more money. And so I think that's, you know, that's a nice motivation to some people. But I think there's probably bigger issues in terms of what the benefits are. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why you think it's important that designers learn to code.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's absolutely kind of these you know, more businessy reasons to learn. <laughs> right. And those are those are great and valid. I truthfully I want people's first motivation to be that it sounds fun, you know, and that, that's why this course is going to be fun. Like we're going to be, you know, underneath what we're doing is like serious skill building. Mm-hmm. But on the surface, we're going to be making like silly interactive faces and they're going to blink at you and stick their tongues out. And <laughs> you know, whatever you can dream up with. Because the thing is that code is so um I think it's so powerful, but a lot of people feel really intimidated. Um, and my my job is to make it approachable.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I, think, I think there's this expectation that writing code, or especially if you call it programming, it feels like a bit too mathy or too mm-hmm. arcane. And especially, you know, I don't, I don't want to generalize for all, certainly not all designers, but a lot of people who get into design you know, love, love the visuals. And they're like, Hey, I want to, I want to make visuals and I want to come up with these visual solutions to problems. And often not always those people, you know, maybe turned away from the sciences or turned away from things that seem too mathy, or at least, you know, that that's a lot of what I've seen with my students. So anyway, my, my approach, which you'll see if you sign up for the course is uh Kind of try and keep things as silly as possible, so you sort of forget that you were intimidated by what you're about to do. <laughs> and then once you have this sort of blinky, interactive, drooling face on your screen that you made, you say, "Oh, okay, actually, I can totally do this. This is, <laughs> this is really doable." Mm, def- and, you know, that's great. Yeah, and the, and the benefit is, like you said, you know, maybe maybe you, you get paid more down the line, hopefully. But uh, to me, the really short term is even if you don't go on to code as part of your job, learning to speak that language and learning that, this sort of thinking process that goes behind Uh, What we call it sort of computational thinking, so appreciating how the computer operates and how you have to think about your own systems, design systems differently in order to fit them into that box that the computer can understand. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really helpful, even if you don't code yourself later, because then you can talk to developers and other people on your team who are working with this stuff. and. I guarantee you'll start to understand, oh, you know, they always get frustrated when I ask for X, Y, and Z. And now I see why that's a big deal. Because I have a sense, mm-hmm. even if you don't understand the details, like you have a sense of what effort had to go into creating that.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Um You know, so you, obviously you're teaching this class, you've taught other classes, you were assistant professor of design at the University of San Francisco. So, with all that in mind, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you think of the state of design education and learning.
1: Yeah, um, it's not totally my area of expertise, so I can't, you know, speak sort of the whole and <laughs> speak for all of education. Right. But you know, my sense within my own little niche is that things are improving and they're improving in an exciting way and that's in the sense that we have um you know this whole stem discussion, uh science, technology, engineering, math, that's really valuable but that's evolved into a steam discussion where we insert a for art in the middle mm-hmm. and the art also kind of represents design in this case. So creative coding fits into that um you know getting Students into, not necessarily even into computer science, but getting exposure to these coding skills earlier, that's really exciting, uh, especially for women or girls and, you know, underrepresented groups, getting them into the field earlier is great. I have a couple of colleagues at University of San Francisco who run these um, like summer workshops for middle school age girls specifically, like introducing them to coding and they've used processing and I think other languages too. And, you know, they've, the reason they're reaching out to middle school girls is that they've found that's, it's like they're old enough so that kind of cognitively they can really appreciate the abstraction and the concepts and the logic and all all this stuff that goes into that computational thinking, Mm -hmm. but they're not quite teenagers. So they haven't yet been Socialized to think that this is uncool or, you know, they don't know that, um, the culture says women shouldn't be doing this um, right. yet. So it turns out middle school is sort of the right age to sort of, um, strategically.
0: <laughs> right. Teach
1: these particular students. So I know that, I mean, middle school level is not my level, but I'm, I'm excited to see efforts like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then certainly undergrad and graduate level, like we're seeing more and more programs in, uh, Data visualization and kind of coding-related practices that aren't just computer science. Like they might have more of a data element. They might have more artistic um, expression element to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is exciting. It's a great. It's a great time to kind of watch what people are doing, bringing different groups together. And I think the. Um the idea of bringing design to younger generations, uh, and coding to younger generations is uh, fascinating to watch. It's, it's really a great observation, too, from your, your perspective about middle school, because it's so spot on with where the thinking is when you are in middle school. Um, So let's talk a little bit about what you know, uh, what you see is, uh, whether it be people or projects, um, what are the things that are grabbing your attention lately? And they can be design or non-design related, but uh, what's of interest to you out there?
1: Yeah, well, one, um, just because we're talking a little about P5, I mean, that that's a, I think P5 is going to be huge. One thing I love about the project, so it's currently, it's uh, well, initiated by and led by Lauren McCarthy and she's on the faculty at ITP in New York. Mm-hmm. And with, although there've been many other contributors over the last few years, but P5 if you go to their website it's p5js.org, they have a like code of conduct. Like like we we now see this as being normal in um you know for conferences, right? Is having this code of conduct and mm-hmm. uh, anti-harassment and everyone's going to be civil. And um, if somebody's not civil, this is, you know, the steps that we'll take to correct it. So P5, of course, is a free open source project, but even just as an open source project, they have a code of conduct and they have this uh, statement of inclusivity. And just how I I love processing was developed from the ground up with education in mind. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of like, there's this pedagogical mission behind how the language itself was designed. P5 has that, but P5 also has this sort of message and value system of inclusivity baked into the the code itself. And I think that's, it's just like a really beautifully written <laughs> statement. Um, and I think it's really interesting as, I you don't know quite the right words for this, but like as a social phenomenon within open source, because mm-hmm. we tend to think of these code projects as just your know, software standing on its own, like, oh, this... I don't know, React does this or Angular does this or, you know, whatever tool does something. And isn't that amazing? And it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's doing that. But I love that P5 is acknowledging the things it's doing are not happening in a vacuum. Like these are real people are spending their time and learning and playing with these things and affecting the world. And it's important that we reach out to all of them, not just the people who are, you know, had computers in their high school or like grew up with whatever kinds of privilege Mm -hmm. um, that everybody has. So Know, to me to me p5 is, is really exciting for like the technical reasons and the social reasons equally it's just it's a really great project um, beyond that I'll just mention a couple of people like Dan Schiffman has been involved with processing since the very beginning or just about the very beginning um, he's now I think oh shoot I forget his role but he's involved with the processing foundation so now there's a, a nonprofit foundation behind the software uh, he's been doing some really interesting experiments with p5 uh videos. Like he, he's done like tons and tons of these YouTube videos, but recently his, his most recent experiment is doing these live P5 broadcasts. Hmm. Um, I think that's through YouTube. So you kind of, he'll say, oh, okay, uh, you know, noon Eastern time, I'm going to address your questions about whatever feature, like, you know, how to draw silly faces or functions or variables or whatever. <laughs> right. And so he'll do like a live broadcast from his studio just improvising as people writing questions and then that's captured and saved. And um, I just think it's, it's a super interesting, like weird new model Mm -hmm. uh, for how to learn stuff. So that's really cool. Um, There's also lots and lots of artists out there who are doing interesting work, not just with P5 and processing. Um, I guess right now Anders Hoff is somebody I actually know very little about, but I really love his Twitter feed and just sort of getting inspired by the crazy generative stuff that he makes and his Twitter handle, I think is, uh, at inconvergent. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. You'll just see crazy images and just, you'll wonder how is that even possible and how is that working? Cool. Great.
0: Well, thank you. Um, a couple just a couple more questions, you know, from your vantage point, what do you think is the next big challenge for, for the design community?
1: (sighs) That's a big question to end on.
0: I know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's so it's such an exciting time. You know that. And it, it's such a time of change. It's sometimes hard to pick just one. But, um, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, if I can give you my little rant <laughs> on that. Um, that's what this is for, right? This is a rant cast? This is totally is a this rant. a regular podcast? It's a, it's a rant cast. It's a rant. Okay, great. You great. nailed it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, well, you know, this is just more reasons it's, it's exciting to be doing this. So, you know, the challenge used to be... I'm going to say, again, okay, 10, 20 years ago, like the challenge was to get the value of design recognized within institutions or the culture at large.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Sort of designers understood design, but everybody else was like, oh, this is just, we slap this on at the end to make it look nice. Um, Whether that's, you know, a a product, uh, physical product or visual design interface, whatever. And I feel like now... Well, not now, but over the last 10, 20 years, you know, Apple especially, but others have sort of solved that problem. Like now people are realizing, oh, design is critical to the success of any product or effort or essentially anything, right? Like we can apply a design process and it will help. Um, So now I think one of the challenges I see is getting design recognized as a a problem solving process Mm -hmm. and not just as a beautification tool and not even just as a, a visual process either um and i think you know designers get this already but um design is kind of one of these weird words where it has all kinds of different meanings in different contexts and so it's hard like when i'm talking about design i'm usually talking about this problem solving process that you could apply To making a band poster or making an interactive silly face or, you know, do like IDEO does like these crazy, like change organization design, like designing entirely new school systems from scratch, Mm -hmm. Um, which is not, I mean, they're visual elements, but it's not really a visual problem. Like you can apply the design process to political problems, social problems. Um, So I think, I mean, to me that that's one of the challenges and the related challenge for the field is sort of to figure out how to, manage all this complexity that goes with, um, you know, increasing popularity and sort of more and more people in more and more fields adopting the design language and kind of design thinking, design process, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. which I, I find really exciting because I, I love interdisciplinary work. I I love being, you know, sort of trying to figure out how to make complexity approachable, um, but it can be super intimidating for new designers and especially, you know, students I've worked with, you know, who are just coming out of school, like they graduate and they're dropped into this whole world that is just, I guess every, every generation thinks the world is like more complicated than it was for the previous generation, but it really feels that way, right? Like just, the bar is so high. Uh, it's like, well, to get any design job, you have to already be familiar with these thousand different processes and techniques and tools. And it can be really intimidating. So I think managing that complexity is going to be huge.
0: Mm, Absolutely. One final, final question. I promise this is it. Um, You're working on a new book and um, creative coding and data viz uh, with surprisingly... P five. Um, I've heard of that. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, um, where you're at, when this is coming out, um, and uh, what prompted you? What prompted you to write that one?
1: Well, obviously, I'm excited about P five, right? Mm-hmm. And um, hopefully, you know, I feel like I was in the right place, at the right time with D three. There was like a lot of thirst for information on that. P5 is a lot friendlier than D3, but I still think uh, it will be useful to have a great, uh, I should say there are a couple of books out already, sort of um, more introductory type books. This is going to be a total introduction to code for somebody who's never coded before, uh, but we're also going to sprinkle in bits about data visualization, so um, not just creative coding making the silly faces I keep mentioning, but maybe loading data and feeding data into your silly faces or uh, doing something a little less silly. And we'll also address in this book how how P5 can be used in the context of the web specifically. So um, if you're interested in making interactive dynamic web pages, um, you know a lot of people start with uh, people kind of new to JavaScript. A lot of people, including me, have started kind of through jQuery. Like, mm-hmm. oh, jQuery made JavaScript a little bit in, in the context of the web, a little bit more friendly and accessible. And um, anyway, P- P5 is like the same thing in the sense that it makes the web more accessible, but it also makes it super, super visual and and really rewarding and fun to play with. So hopefully uh, we don't have a specific published date for that book yet, but it'll be out sometime in uh, 2017.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you,
1: Mary. I appreciate it.
0: You can reach Scott on Twitter at Aligned Left. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.